Hello, this is Gregory Novak. This is The Cunning of Geist, episode 50. Welcome back. Can't believe we made it all the way to 50 episodes. Thank you all so much for listening. The purpose of this podcast is to explore philosophy, psychology, and science with an emphasis on the great philosopher George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. Let me begin by saying that this podcast is an evolving project for me. I've learned so much in preparing for each episode, and I hope my perspectives and analysis are are beneficial to all you listeners. And those that are familiar with the podcast know that there are certain central tenets of mine that we've been exploring through these various episodes. First, that there is more going on in the world than blind, purposeless, naturalistic materialism, and that is what we call mind or spirit, i.e. geist, that evolution is central to the universe, that there is no separate higher realm, but this higher realm, spirit, is actually within us all, and that we are part of a historical process of increasing consciousness of spirit, freedom, and rationality within the world here. In this episode, I'm going to be talking about the unpleasant topic of war. Perhaps this is no surprise given the events going on in the world today with Russia invading Ukraine. And this particular event has caused me to think a lot about what philosophy has to say about war. And for that, one must turn to Clausewitz. His book on war is arguably the most influential study of war that's ever been done. Karl von Clausewitz was a Prussian general and military theorist of the early 19th century who lived at the same time as Hegel in what is now Germany, probably a day's drive from where Hegel grew up. And interestingly, although Clausewitz does not directly attribute his thinking to Hegel, it is often described as Hegelian. I will be reviewing Clausewitz's theories on war first, and then we'll move on to what Hegel had to say on the subject. One thing is for certain, the events of the last month have certainly put an end to any type of thinking that the end of history has arrived, and that liberal democracies can now all live peacefully together. We've discussed the end of history concept several times here. This was an idea that was first brought to light by Alexander Kojev in his influential book, Introduction to the Reading of Hegel. It was published in 1947. And more recently, in the book by Francis Fukuyama, The End of History and the Last Man, published in 1992. Both of them invoke Hegel as suggesting that the end of history was upon us. Now, we've discussed here often that I believe, and many others do, that this hypothesis is flawed, that Hegel did not say that there was some utopian state that had arrived or that it's, it's closely waiting for us. We discuss this in particular in episode 48 on how tribalism fueled by the internet has thrown a monkey wrench into this notion, which Fukuyama himself has acknowledged. But these latest events, the invasion of Ukraine is more old school, more World War II type aggression, signaling that the world has not entered some new age of peace, which is why I titled this episode, Say Goodbye to the End of History. And again, just let me make it clear. I do not believe that Hegel himself believed that the the end of history was upon us. This is something other people reading Hegel have, have, have come up with on their own. So let's begin. Clausewitz's book on war is considered perhaps the greatest book on military strategy ever written, as I said, and it remains influential even to this day. 
It was published right after his death in 1832. It was unfinished at the time. He was working on revising the manuscript when he died. His wife actually edited his work and then had it published after his death. Before we get into the the book, though, let's take a brief look at Clausewitz himself. He was born in 1780 in Magdeburg in Prussia, which is now part of Germany. He was a soldier in the Napoleonic Wars on the side of Prussia and was actually taken prisoner in the Battle of Jena by Napoleon's forces. As you recall, Jena was where Hegel was finishing his work on his book, The Phenomenology of Spirit, and he actually witnessed Napoleon on horseback riding by, and it it made a big impression on him, and he called Napoleon the world soul, which is one of the most famous quotes from Hegel. Now, but back to Clausewitz, I said he was taken prisoner, and after being released, he returned back to Prussia. However, he was opposed to Prussia's then forced alliance with Napoleon, and as a result, he joined the Russian army, joined a Russian-German unit. And this Russian-German unit later rejoined the Prussian army in, in fighting Napoleon. And this Pr- Prussian army played a key role in Napoleon's defeat at Waterloo, for those of you that have studied that battle. Now, it was around this time that he began writing on his theories of war. And after his service, he became the head of a German military school. But he was later called back into duty, into military service, at the time of the Polish-Russian War. And he actually led troops right up to the Polish border in 1829, leading troops. And all this time, he'd been working on his book on war. And he succumbed to a uh, cholera epidemic, which broke out in Europe in 1826 and caused his death in 1831 at the age of 51. And as I mentioned, his book was unfinished at the time. He'd been working on it for some 15 years, and he was revising and editing it when he died. And regarding the book, scholars have noted that it contains some apparent contradictions. However, Others point out that these contradictions are, in fact, the result of his dialectical process. And there are different takes on this by different scholars. Now, uh, this was the first of, of a major work on the, on the philosophy of war. And as I said, it's still being studied and, and it's considered very influential today. You, you often hear people quote Clausewitz when they're talking about war situations. So, what are the main principles of on war? Well, first of all, there's there's no 30-second elevator speech to describe Clausewitz's theory of war. And this way, it is similar to Hegel's philosophy, which we have commented on before. There is no easy, quick description. But a force to summarize, Clausewitz describes a three-notion approach. And this is somewhat similar to Hegel's method. However, Clausewitz's three aspects of war do not flow in the same dialectical direction as Hegel's does. It does not follow the abstraction, negation, and concrete actuality of, of how Hegel's dialectics uh, flow. With Clausewitz, it's more that there are three tendencies which interact with each other to various degrees. Let me quote him on this. War is, quote, a fascinating trinity composed of primordial violence, hatred, and enmity, which are to be regarded as a blind natural force, the play of chance and probability within which the creative spirit is free to roam, 
and its element of subordination as an instrument of policy, which makes it subject to pure reason, end quote. Now, even this summary is tough to unpack, but let's, let's take a, a try here. First, he describes the element of blind natural force to be considered, and this is the blind emotion of the people. It's rage untempered by thought. The second element he describes is that of chance and probability, and this is important as it echoes to some degree Hegel's notion of nature as being the other of logic, uh, nature with this blind chance and, and, and probability at work. This also echoes Charles Pierce's notion of chance and probability, which Pierce called tychism, as a fundamental element of nature. We discussed Pierce's theories in detail in episode 46. The third element in Clausewitz's theory is that of subordination, that of extending the policy of a nation, which is a, a rational procedure, a, a, the policy of the nation. Now, to reduce it even further, you can say it's the, the three elements are one, violent emotion, two, chance, and three, rational calculation. And Clausewitz does provide an explanation of these three aspects in a little more detail. Let me quote him again. Quote, the first of these three aspects concerns more the people, the second more the commander in his army, the third more the government. The passions are to blaze up in war must already be inherent in the people. The scope that the play of courage and talent will enjoy in the realm of probability and chance depends on the particular character of the commander in the army. But the political aims are the business of government alone. These three tendencies are like three different codes of law, deep-rooted in their subject and yet variable in their relationship to one another. A theory that ignores any one of them or seeks to fix an arbitrary relationship among them would conflict with reality to such an extent that for this reason alone, it would be totally useless, end quote. So what does this mean? Well, having the backing of the people is key to any war effort. In the American Civil War, Lincoln knew that he had to galvanize the North for war because there was going to be a terrible price to pay to keep the Union together. He was successful and kept the country whole. And as such, he's recognized as one of the greatest, if not the greatest, American president. Franklin Roosevelt also accomplished this in World War II for the United States. He stirred the American people to go to war. But on, on the other hand, more recently, the Vietnam War in the 1960s and early 70s it never got the full support of the American people. And Lyndon Johnson was the American president who primarily escalated the war, and he knew that he didn't have the support of the people. It has been reported that President Lyndon Johnson said after a 1968 broadcast where popular newscaster Walter Cronkite made very negative commentary on pursuing the Vietnam War. And Johnson is reported to have said to an aide, if I've lost Cronkite, I've lost middle America. Johnson declined to run again for president because of this. And one wonders today in Russia if the people are fully behind the invasion of Ukraine. Initial indications are that many are not, and this does not bode well for the success of Putin's mission. More on this in a moment. So the important thing here is that Clausewitz is saying that war is not just for the generals. It also involves the people of the country who must fight and support the war, and the rationale itself, the policy that is the reason for the war. These three aspects must be balanced. If not, it can produce not only horrible but meaningless results. And some say this happened in World War I. On a personal note, uh, do you ever get in, into a fight 
with your partner and after a while you forget the original reason for the fight, but you just know that you're in a fight and you must keep fighting. The policy decisions behind the war must not be forgotten and the moral, rational reasons must be remembered. I'm not going to get into all the different elements of Clausewitz's work as they are vast. I should just point out that Vladimir Lenin, Dwight Eisenhower, and Mao Zedong used his interpretations extensively. Now, some say that with the arrival of the nuclear age that we live in, that Clausewitz's analyses are no longer relevant. I do not believe this to be the case. Eisenhower used his understanding of Clausewitz extensively in the 1950s to show the horrors and mutual destruction which nuclear war would unleash, that there can be no political reason for mutual destruction, and it's certainly not what the people want. And today, we again see a war being waged in Europe, with Russia and nuclear power invading its neighbor. Putin claims to have a political reason for this, but it will be up to history to judge whether th this is true or not. And the threat of nuclear escalation has not stopped him. And so far, the, the threat of nuclear escalation has stopped the West, NATO, from interfering more than it has and directly taking on Russia. And the West may be taking a more Clausewitzian approach here of balancing the will of the people and political objectives and only imposing economic sanctions on Russia and supplying Ukraine with weapons. You hear that the West does not want to start a nuclear war over this. And the first thing I want to comment on this is that if one nuclear power backs down from another, then you have a classic master-slave dialectical situation where the master is willing to risk his life and the slave is not which then determines who is the master and who is the slave. We covered Hegel's master-slave dialectic in detail in episode 13, so please go back and listen to that if you missed it. The point here is that the West, i.e. NATO, has apparently said that the line in the sand is if Putin were to attack any NATO country. So the nuclear deterrent may still be in play, but it is enough of a deterrent to cause the West not to engage directly with Russia right now in, in Ukraine. Now, since I mentioned the master-slave dialectic, let's move on to Hegel. Hegel does address war very specifically, briefly, but specifically in the philosophy of right, paragraph 324 to 329. This is a section entitled Sovereignty Vis-a-Vis -vis Foreign States, which is the second section of his discussion of the state, in, which is in the third part of the, his, the work on the ethical life. Now, I'm going to paraphrase what Hegel says here in, in these few paragraphs, but please go and read them for yourself. Hegel begins by saying that it, it's an individual's duty not only to protect his own property, but to maintain the sovereignty of the independence of the state, even at the risk of his own property and life. That one's property cannot be defended unless one is prepared to risk their life for the state. Now, the state is a very important concept in Hegel's notion of freedom. Hopefully we can spend some more time on this in a future episode. This is really what the philosophy of right is all about. Individual man is more free if he's in a family. And family man is more free as, as a society man. And society man is more free within the state. So the state is essential for a person's freedom. And again, I'm saying man that applies equally for women as well. Now, regarding war, specifically a war between two states, Hegel is brief. 
what he has written on this has been subject to widely diverging views. Some contend that he glorified war, others believe he supported only morally correct wars, and others that he was opposed to war in principle. My own opinion is Hegel does not fall fully into one of these three camps. His brief discussion of war is in context more on the individual and the state and what the individual's obligation is and how individuals are obliged to fight for the state. Now, I will be quoting one remark from this section where he goes on to criticize Kant's proposed League of Nations aimed at perpetual peace. And as you know, as a process philosopher, Hegel believes in change and evolution, and he saw perpetual peace, the kind that Kant had proposed, as leading to stagnation and death. And here's here's the, the quote that I want to read on this. Hegel states, quote, The ethical health of peoples is preserved in their indifference to the stabilization of finite institutions. Just as the blowing of the winds preserves the sea from the foulness, which would be the result of a prolonged calm, so also corruption in nations would be the product of prolonged, let alone perpetual peace. End quote. He then goes on to say, however, and this is very important, quote, This, however, is said to be only a philosophic idea, and it is maintained that actual wars require some other justification. End quote. This is key. Hegel is saying that change for change's sake Wars for war's sake is not enough. There must be meaningful rationale to go to war for one state. This was the case in the American Civil War and in World War II, but not in Vietnam. Hegel also notes that war can strengthen the bond of the individual to the state, that a situation of permanent peace within a state can also lead to stagnation and death. In in addition to the paragraph we've been talking about, he states, quote, In peace, civil life continually expands. All its departments wall themselves in, and in the long run, men stagnate. Their idiosyncrasies become continually more fixed and ossified. But for health, the unity of the body is required, and its parts harden themselves into exclusiveness, that is, death. Perpetual peace is often advocated as an ideal toward which humanity should survive. As a result of war, nations are strengthened, end quote. Again, this is a result of war, not a reason to go to war. Let's be clear on this. Hegel's not warmongering here. He's stating how things work. And just one more point on Hegel. He views the state in a similar way as he views an individual. And the individual, according to Hegel, defines itself as a self in contrast to another self. Uh, it's interesting. This is why Hegel, during his lifetime, did not consider America, a full-fledged country like other countries in Europe. And it was primarily because they had no other country bounding them in the West. They were still expanding. Hence, they were a nation in development, nature of the future, not yet playing a key role in history in Hegel's time. Now, a key thing here is recognition for both the individual and the state. The individual wants to be recognized and is willing to put their life on the line for it. Same thing goes for the nation state. The need for recognition drives so much of what one does and one wants. Same thing applies to the nation state. We've talked about this before in previous episodes. And I believe this is actually what's going on in Russia today. Russia does not want to be swept aside as the U.S. and China battle for world power. They want things to go back to the Cold War where they were one of two superpowers. It will be very interesting to see how things play out. And we pray for an end to this hideous violence. One thing that was interesting, 
bankrupting Russia worked to end this Cold War and break up the Soviet Union. Maybe it'll work again in the present situation with their economic sanctions. Let's hope so. And one more last point on Hegel. As you know, he puts dialectics on the forefront because that is how life is. It, life is dialectical. It is change. Negations are overcome and sublated. And this happens between individuals, between groups within society, and between states. History cannot end because that would mean stagnation and death, as Hegel states. And stagnation is not dialectical. Evolution is everything. There will continue to be conflicts, and the nature of these conflicts will change. Certainly, nuclear war has drastically changed the reasons and methods of war, and more changes are likely to occur. So let's summarize. Clausewitz was a contemporary of Hegel, and he used a dialectical approach to warfare. He argued that there are three elements that comprise any war, an emotional instinct of the people of the state, the command of the generals, and the policy of the governing state. In the case of the invasion of Ukraine, it is not clear to me whether the Russian people are emotionally behind this invasion. And regarding the generals, this may become a moot issue given the fact that Ukraine claims seven Russian generals have been killed so far. And this leaves policy, the third element, and it seems that the stated policy of Russia entering Ukraine is one of protection, a preemptive war to extend its boundaries for greater security. However, to me, this seems flawed. Several NATO countries currently border Russia, the biggest being Poland. Also, NATO is a defensive organization, not an aggressive one. It is not that Ukraine was once technically a part of Russia. Interesting aside, I had a friend in college, a good buddy, back in the late 1960s, early 70s, who had a Russian-sounding last name. And we would often tease him and call him the Russian. And he'd get very mad about this. And he would say, I'm not Russian. I'm not Russian. I'm Ukrainian. There's a big difference. And this was back when Ukraine was part of the old Soviet Union. So uh, there's really no truth to this notion that the, it's all one country that's been broken up somehow. So in my view, None of Clausewitz's three reasons hold up here for Russia invading Ukraine. So what is causing it? I believe it's the need for recognition, as we've been discussing. It's very much a Hegelian need, as we've covered often. And Clausewitz himself saw this need for recognition as a precursor for war. Some scholars contend that Clausewitz put more emphasis on recognition early on in his writings than he did later on when he got more specific with his triadic approach. Let me quote an international studies journal, quote, the early Clausewitz's theoretical approach is primarily characterized by a violation of existing forms of recognition, end quote. This need for recognition is often called existential war as opposed to instrumental war. Now, instrumental war results from the triadic formulation we've been discussing. Existential war is a result of the need for recognition. However, it is not one or the other. It's not existential war or instrumental war. Clausewitz never abandoned the need for recognition as a cause for existential war. And I quote from this International Studies Journal again, quote, the previous conceptualization of the existential view of war nevertheless was still present in his thought at the end of his life, end quote. I believe this need for recognition is incorporated in the emotional base instinct part of Clausewitz's trinity. This can apply to the country at large or to a segment of the population. 
Recognition is not about policy. No one says our policy is to be recognized. It's not about the generals, how to wage war. It's more basic than that, more fundamental, more instinctual. It's as basic as self-identity is itself, which Hegel has taught us. This is what is driving the invasion of Ukraine, in my view. And as I said, let's hope and pray this ends as quickly as possible. And finally, as we've said here several times before, Hegel viewed history as a slaughter bench. And this is his theodicy. That it's one of the reasons I was attracted to his philosophy. There's organized killing in the world as ideologies clash in a battle for recognition and supremacy and for a, a better way. Unfortunately, this is necessary as a way of spirit gaining more freedom and independence for humanity. It would be nice if somehow this was different, but this is not a fairy tale. This is real life. As they say, freedom is not free. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening once again. Please follow the podcast Facebook page, at Cunning of Geist, where I will be listing all references cited here. And I often post relevant comments between episodes on this page, so be sure to check it out. And you can also follow me on Twitter, also at Cunning of Geist. And be sure to like, rate, and review this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And please tell your like-minded friends about it. And feel free to share these episodes on social media. And lastly, if you're not a member of the Hegel Study Group on Facebook yet, please consider joining. We are 26,000 strong, and we are continuing to grow. It's the best philosophy group on Facebook and perhaps the best on the entire Internet. So, this is Gregory Novak. This is The Cunning of Geist. See you next time.